they transcend time, don't they? Um, praise the Lord for good hymn writers. Oh, Fanny Crosby, she wrote so many of them. Uh, can't wait to meet her someday. Deuteronomy 4 is our text tonight. Before I want to get there, I just want to say one thing about Aniston. Um, I want to add to something. She's a good example of when to know when to baptize children. Because that's always a challenge. Uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit hard sometimes. But she said something that really caught my mind, not in this, but in earlier meetings. She said, she actually told her mom, and her mom told me, Mom, I cannot wait to get in there and tell everyone what Jesus did for me. So I, I think sometimes we use the term baptism in an act of obedience, and I think that is, but sometimes that can seem, well, I got to do this. When your children are ready to say this, I can't wait to tell people what Jesus has done for me, that's worship. So you see the difference? And, and I, I like that. That really, uh, when, when, when their parents told me that, I said, baptize her. <laughs> She's ready to go. And uh, now, children are different, and some are a little more timid and things like that. You've got you to make sure you understand those things. But, but that's what we want them to have, that confidence um, in Christ. Not so much in themselves, but confidence in Christ. I hope that, does that clarify? Because I get asked that sometimes. You know, why don't you baptize four-year-olds and things like that? And I always say I would baptize a four-year-old if, if they can really communicate clearly what God has done, and they, and they can't wait to do it. So that, that is encouraging, and um, I appreciate her testimony. Father in heaven, we thank you that we're not saved through baptism. We are saved through the finished work of your son. And then we get to display in front of the people we love most, the church, what your son did. And we get to enact that in a way. We get to show them that we, when Christ died, we died. When he was raised to new life, we were raised to new life. What a beautiful lesson that's there. And so thank you for the reminder of that, Lord. We pray that you will continue to use this church, parents particularly, Lord, moms and dads, sensitive to the souls of their children to share the gospel with them. We pray that you continue to do that here. Many, many young people will come to know you at an early age and have decades and decades of time to live for you and to serve you. So we pray you would do that for your glory, for, the, for, for you deserve that. And then do it, Lord, for your fame here on this earth, what people would see and hear that message. And so, Lord, thank you for that tonight. Lord, we pray you'd help us as we look at Deuteronomy 4, as we start into these sermons of Moses, that we would be able to apply these things to our lives as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 4 begins the first sermon. It'll run through 4, 5, and 6. Then there's a little hiatus, and then he comes back and preaches a couple more throughout that. And so it's, it's Moses' last sermon, so they're uh, really fun to study, and I am truly enjoying my study on them. I got thinking about just to kind of set the mindset of what Moses is maybe sitting there doing somewhere in here. He's writing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, you know, he's now writing Deuteronomy. All this is happening. And so that made me think just a little bit about what God was doing here. And, and I think God is acting in his kindness and his sovereign grace to this nation. And think about what he does. He takes this enslaved nation made up of several million people. He grants them freedom miraculously, Right? 
and then he spills them out into the Sinai wilderness. Two million people plus spilled out into the Sinai wilderness, and it's quite fascinating. And, and you think about them as we've studied them all the way through Genesis, all the way now to Deuteronomy, they're, they're, they're weak. They've been enslaved for 430 years. And so they're physically probably weak, they're spiritually weak, and we see that their character is exposed as they're going through. It doesn't take them long just after, I mean, well, they think they're going to die before they get across the Red Sea. And then after the Red Sea, they think they're going to die. And I mean, this goes on and on and on, right? And so you can see that their spiritual character is weak as well. But think a little more. They have no literature. They, they are not carrying this around. They're not even carrying around the Pentateuch yet. Everything they know about God has been passed down from the patriarchs. They do not have a written document, no sacred scriptures, no, no law unto their own except what God passed down through them. Well, Abraham sacrificed and some, maybe some of those sacrifices, but there's nowhere in their captivity that we actually see them operating that way. A few months later, the Lord's clays claim to them and he says, they're a people of my own possession. We'll see that in verse 20 in chapter 4 here. And, and, and there at Mount Sinai, God gives them the perfect law. So now they have a law to themselves, Lord, that the Lord gave them. They, they didn't have one before, but now they have a law like no man or no nation has ever seen. All of a sudden, this nation has a law. And it's not just any law, it's God's law, and it's perfect. And that's law within it contains righteous principles to help them establish order and even when we look at this law today in our modern world, we still go back to it. Most laws around the world are set up off of the Ten Commandments. I think killing people is still a problem around the world, isn't it? And if you steal, in some places, you get your hand cut off. We might need to enact that in America. Right? So you can see where it's affected even the modern world. And when we study the law of God, like we're doing now, we realize that no man or group of people have ever been able to improve on this law. We're always improving on our laws, right? we got to change them all the time because they're fallible, because they're man's, but not God's, not God's law. So within this law, there are 10 short commandments. We're going to get into those in chapter 5 that declare both the moral and spiritual responsibility of mankind to God, to a living God. And they're beautiful. But the commandments, even in the New Testament, and under the New Covenant perspective, can never be improved on. We, we don't go to the New Testament to find um, a better understanding of those. We see the fulfillment of them and see them in Christ, but there's not like to get better. You shall not have any other gods before me. You can't go to the New Testament and go, well, yeah, they improved on that one. They're They're perfect. Now, we have a greater understanding through Christ, but yes. But when we study this, Moses is just unashamedly declaring these commandments, and he's declaring these commandments are a testimony of God's great work on behalf of the nation. We'll see that in verse 7 and 8 in just a minute. Now, the Ten Commandments play an extremely large role in the book of Deuteronomy. They are referred to at least 25 times. The Ten Commandments, not the whole law. He'll talk about lots of other parts of the law as we go through it. But 25 times he refers to the Ten Commandments. And so it's something that we should pay attention to, and even the Lord refers back to these passages as well. 
But at the same time, the Ten Commandments are one of the most abused passages, right? They're abused today. People around the world think if they can keep them, they can somehow get to God. And so some have used them on courthouse steps, which I have no problem with. But when you don't understand what the law is about and what its purposes are to do, now they get used for a form of righteousness. So here's what I want to do um, I want to do tonight. Well, it's probably going to be a two-porter. I want to go through four, but before I get into five, I want to, to go back, and, and I realize every time you teach on the law, you have to do this because um, I think there's something in us that likes to keep things. Give me a list to do, and I'll get that done, and I'll be good with you, okay? Right? We have that kind of in our flesh. So I want to get through this, and then I want to look at three reasons why the law was given. And it's in your notes. I'm not sure I'll get to them tonight, but I'll get to them before we jump to five. Um, next, next Wednesday, we have Patty Parks here, and Josh and I are going to be interviewing her, and so the first part of the service is going to be about that. It'll be fun, and then maybe I can clean this up next week. But, but it's so important because otherwise, these Ten Commandments can get used differently. You can start thinking uh, the way God did not in want them, and Satan's certainly been a proponent of this false teaching. There's all kinds of people out there that think they gain righteousness through this, or, or they say um, it's the keeping of the law and Christ, so it's not Christ alone it's where you get your justification. So it's always good to take a look at these things and make sure we use them for his purposes. Now, number one, the law of God and his long-suffering nature with his people. Now, I'm just going to work my way down through these verses. They're wonderful things that go on. Here starts the sermon. The sermon starts here, chapter 4, verse 1. And here we are, a sermon that's, you know, 1,400 years before Christ, maybe 1,450, you know, 35, about 3,500 years ago, this sermon was written. And it doesn't change. There's, you don't, you can't make it better. It's God's word. That's why we believe in his sufficiency. So listen to Moses here. God's speaking through him. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments when I'm teaching you to perform so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Notice he says, O Israel. Not O Canaanites or Hittites or Jezreites or anybody else. O Israel. Isn't that interesting? It's important to realize this. There still are not Hittites trying to get the land somewhere. It's Israel. It's God's, God writing to a particular nation, to a particular people that he chose, not because they're great and, and anything else. The Bible says they were stiff-necked and, and fought God all the way, but he chose them. And so it's important to remember that. Look at verse 2. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I have commanded you. Now, that's an interesting statement, I, and I really, it's precious, isn't it? You shall not add to the word, nor take away from it. Have we heard that anywhere else? Well, first of all, Matthew 5, 17, 18, 19, somewhere in there, Jesus says, I've come to fulfill that law. I didn't come to add to it. I didn't come to take away from it. I came to fulfill that law. Of course, only he could do that. So why don't dare change it. Remember, he, he was being attacked that you've come and, and you're coming here to change the law. He said, no, 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 you got that all wrong. I've come here to fulfill that. And then when you get to the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 22, towards the bottom, somewhere 18, somewhere in there, it says, do not add or take away from this book or all the plagues that are in it will be upon you. And this just reminds us that we don't have to do something special with God's word. 
We don't have to go, well, you know, there's somebody here today, so let's sugarcoat it just a little bit, right? You know, or, or let's, let's get it to where it's palatable. No, no, don't add to it. Don't take away from it. You want to see people get saved, don't add or take away from the word of God. It changes lives. It's what it does. Look at verse 3. Your eyes have seen the Lord, seen what the Lord has done in the case of Baal Peor. For all the men who Baal Peor, excuse me, for all the men who followed Baal Peor, the Lord your God has destroyed them from among you. Now, here's a reminder to them. They might have been thinking, well, yeah, our parents didn't do very good and they got destroyed. But he brings them back to that missing section. Remember last week when I was going through two and three, I said the the battle against um, Balak, whom Balaam was with and trying to curse the nation and stuff, that's not recorded in there. Well, now he brings it up. And there's a reason why he brings it up because they may have been thinking, yes, we're not like our parents who got to the promised land and didn't have faith and rejected God and they got judged and they died in the wilderness. He brings us up. He says, look, your eyes have seen what the Lord has done in the case of Baal Peor. You saw what happened. Balaam couldn't curse you. So what he did was he brought the immorality of the Moabites, particularly of the King Balak there, and he brought that to our camp. And we fell into it. It was so bad that, remember Phineas, the high priest, had to take a spear to a couple who was in an immoral act and run it through both of them. And they killed everyone who got into that, that false worship that was tied into immorality. And so he brings us up to remind them, look, uh, all of the men who followed Baal, the Lord your God destroyed them from among you. But then the, notice what he says. But you who held fast to the Lord, your God, are alive today. So he's really just teaching the principle that we know, right? The wages of sin is what? And when we follow the Lord, we find life, right? In, in the Lord, there's life. So he's, he's making that clear connection there with what God has always done and was not changed. Now, look at verse five. See, I have taught you the statutes and judgments, so as the Lord my God commanded me, that you, sh- you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So, so now's the time. This is what your parents didn't do. Now's the time to take what God's teaching you, live according to it as he brings you in the land. The time is now. So keep and do them. Keep them and walk in them is the idea. For that is your wisdom and your understanding. Now look at this. In the sight of the people who will hear all of these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Isn't that interesting? It's almost like a missional aspect of the nation of Israel around there. Their obedience to the Lord is a witness of his work. Now, wouldn't that be true? You believe you have this God, but then you don't obey him? What kind of witness is that? God says to live a holy life because he is holy and yet you choose to live a very unholy life, but you say, oh, I follow Jesus. See, some of these principles haven't changed, right? They're here. Get my statues, get my teaching, hold fast to them, keep them, do them. And when you do that, the peoples of the world will look and say, surely this nation is a wise people. I think that should be us as well. Obeying God makes you wise. And it draws people to your God. Why are you like the way you are? Have you ever been asked that by somebody? Some say, why are you guys so different? Why is your marriage different? How come your kids are different than ours? 
I had a, a man come out. I was teaching his son some hitting lessons. We had a batting cage in our backyard, and, and I'll never forget him. He's, I didn't know why he was out there. I don't think, I don't know if his kid was actually there. He just drove up. He, I, I remember the man. I don't remember his son being there. And he said, I came out here to ask you one question. I said, fire away. I'm sitting in the batting cage throwing, and, and he's asked me this question. He said, why are your children so different than the rest of ours? I mean, it was just a great opportunity. Now, my kids certainly weren't perfect, right? Um, and I explained that, and I explained mom and dad aren't perfect either. But let me tell you the answer to that. What, you, what you're seeing is we believe there's a God in heaven, and he has a plan, and he laid that down, and it's called the Bible. And we believe the Bible. And in that Bible teaches me that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And when you give your life to Christ and follow him, you die to self and follow him, it changes you. That guy was in church with his family the next week and, and stayed with us as long as we were there. They were there with us because they, they, and I don't know that he got saved. He never came up and said he got saved, but I got opportunity after opportunity. And see, when we obey the Lord, you get opportunities to speak of the wisdom of God. And so when, when we start to think about wisdom, think about 1 Corinthians 1 verse 24. I think it says Christ is the wisdom of God. So, so the wisdom has to lead to Christ. Obey him, keep him, do what he tells us to do. He'll give you opportunities. Look at verse seven. For what, this is an awesome two verses here. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as it is the Lord your God when we call on him? What nation has this God that's so ready to come and help when you call on him. Verse eight, or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments and righteous, righteous as the whole law which I am set before you today? Isn't this, what, what nation has this? What nation has God and his word? It's rhetorical, isn't it? None of them. None of them have it. And it teaches us that God has always been a God who goes after a particular people to secure them and give himself to them and give his word to them. The nations around them didn't have anything like this. They had no sacred, infallible, sufficient writings. They had no God that could hear them and talk to them and, and, and work with them and lead them and do all the things this God did. They had no. They were gods of stone and wood and they fell on their faces and, and they would whittle it up, make a God, and then use the rest of that wood to burn a fire to cook their meal. They were dead gods. And so he's reminding them as he starts this great sermon, who has a God like this? Isn't it a good question to ask ourselves? You could be a Canaanite. <laughs> away, from the, away from the favor and blessing of God in a sense. And, and we see God save Canaanites in, in the New Testament. Jesus, Jesus as he works for the woman who wants the crumbs off the table, right? She was a Sophitian woman, a Canaanite woman. But, but isn't that amazing? And you see them both. God who's near, that's God himself, and great, these great statutes and judgments, that's his word. That's what he does for his people. He gives himself to you, and he gives his word to you. Look at verse 9 with me. And here we start into a series of warnings. Notice them in verse 9. Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently. Another warning, verse 15. So watch yourself carefully. Verse 23. 
So watch yourself that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God. So he has three series of warnings here in the first part of this sermon. If you want to break this down, you can kind of see he's got an outline. He's got points that he's trying to drive home here. And so he says, only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently. Isn't that interesting language? Some people look at the commandments and it's all, you know, be clean and do this and do that and all those type of things. But that's not how God talks. God talks about the soul of man. He talks about our hearts. Because he knows when the soul of man is his, the outside will come along. But as Christians, sometimes we struggle with that, right? We want to clean people up on the outside and, you know, get them, you know, looking all right. But here the warning is, keep your soul diligently. That's, that's where those decisions are made in our hearts and in our, in our inner person. And you do this so you don't forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Now, this is where true faith passes down to generation after generation, right? Not, not in a salvific sense, but, but in a teaching of it. So if you get it in your soul, mom and dad... And, and you remember the things that you've seen God do, and that's reading the scriptures, knowing the greatness of him, watching him in your life, and this transformation that he did in your own life, took a heart of stone out, put a heart of flesh in it, all those things, and you don't forget to teach these to your next generation. Notice he, he uses several generations. Make them known to your sons and to your grandsons. Can you save your children? No. But you can sure make him known. I mean, it's a... It's a statement for a lot of churches. I think Piper kind of started this. Um, make known Christ, you know. Make him known. What, a, what an amazing start to this message. Make him known, and it'll be generational. God, and I tell people all the time, I, I, I don't know who God saves, but as we study who he does save, he seems to love to save generationally. He likes to save your kids and your grandkids. He, he likes to do that. But we're, our job is to make known, and so this is a, a, a really a warning of them not to do this. And we know in, into Joshua's days, now several generations have passed away, and it starts in the book of Judges, and they did not teach their children the ways of God. And the book of Judges is rightly named, because God begins to judge. Verse 11 you came near and you stood at the foot of the mountain and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens, darkness and clouds and thick gloom. Now, what's amazing in these verses, let me just read 12 too. Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire and you heard the sounds of a word, but you saw no form, only a voice. So no physical presence of God, but yet his glory is there. Notice here, at the foot of the mountain, remember they couldn't come anywhere close to the mountain. Man or beast could not come or they would die. And, and there God is on the mountain. And we talked about this in, in when we were back in Exodus a long time ago, that really what they were experiencing was really the Shekinah glory of God that was hitting that mountain on top. And notice it says it here, the very heart of heaven. That's the glory of God. At the very heart of heaven is the glory of God. And they saw it. And it's so important because, look, he says, you, you, didn't see, you didn't see anything. You saw no form in verse 12. You heard a voice. You saw a voice. And this, 
launches him into the first part of the Ten Commandments. He's going to get into more detail in chapter 5. So he says in verse 13, So he declared to you his covenant which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might perform them in the land where you are going over to possess. So they see this theophany of God, right? This appearance of God. It's fire and smoke and it's coming, it goes all the way to the heart of heaven. And, and this is to, this theophany of who God is, is to lead them towards obedience. And so he, now as they remind that, wow, we were there, we, 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 that was an incredible display of the power of God and the glory of God. So he launches into verse 15, he says, so watch yourself since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire so that you do not act corruptly and make graven images of yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of a male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth. And beware, do not lift up your eyes to the heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God, listen to this, has allotted to all the people under the whole heavens. Now, now there's a little bit of a mouthful, but you can tell what he's doing. When you saw me, you did not see an image. You can see where the first command's coming out, right? Don't start making one. Now, now think about this. <laughs> Maybe as they were listening to this, um, their heads kind of went down. Well, we already built a golden calf. <laughs> that didn't go over very good. Right? And, and, and then again, he's also showing the comparison to the nations around them. All of these things that he has listed is all of the things that the nations around them worshipped. And they whittled out and carved and made forms of all of these things. And then he says, which is tremendously powerful, and Egypt was at fault of this in many, many nations, and even today, people love to somehow worship the sun, the moon, the stars, and the heavens, and they're drawn away into all kinds of crazy stuff. But he says, which the Lord God has allotted to all the people. Don't take what I made for all of creation, the sun and the moon and the stars. I mean, imagine if, well, we couldn't even have life without those, right? I made those for these people. Do not turn them into worship. It's a real statement of common grace there. So don't take those things that I have made for your good and make them into something you will bow down. Now, note verse 20. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of, now look at this, this phrase here, the iron furnace. I didn't look at the other translations what that is, but I did look at the Hebrew. And it, it's a word for noting intensity. Well, you can imagine an iron furnace, how intense that heat is. And so he says, I, I want you to understand the intensity of what I brought you out of. Don't forget, from Egypt I brought you out of, to be a people for his own possession today. Now, I look at that and I go, wow, God, as Christians that are decades and decades into Christianity, right? Many of us have been saved for many years it's, I think it's a good exercise for us to go back and say, God, if it was not for you, uh, given our testimonies from time to time, we should do this more often. Giving our testimony to somebody or to a group or someone, we just heard a testimony, right? And, and we're stirred at this young lady's testimony here. 
it's good for us to do this because it's a reminder. Look, I brought you out of the iron furnace. The iron furnace is a, that, that Hebrew word is connected with judgment and, and, and a lot of people think with, with, with uh, hell, right? It's, an, it's, it's deep and it's a reminder. I brought you out of hell itself in a sense. And, and see, that's a great reminder. And then he says this great phrase, which Peter uses as well, to be a people for his own possession. And what's fascinating about that is all that come to him by faith alone are his possession. It's the marker of the possession of God's people. Now look at verse 21. Now the Lord was angry with me on your account. We looked at this same phrase that he said last week in chapter 3. And swore that I could not cross Jordan and that I would not enter the good land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. For I will die in this land. What he's saying is I'm dying on this side of the river. I shall not cross the Jordan. But you shall cross and take possession of the land. Moses is saying, look, you need to understand sin has wages, and I am here as an example to you. This is what happens. So verse 23 comes with one more warning, so watch yourself. Watch yourself. I think it probably been pretty stirring as this nation now has fought several wars. Two and a half of the tribes are settling in on the east side of the Jordan River. They're getting excited. They're, 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 I mean, they're right there. Jericho is just right across there. They can see it. They're, they're, God's providing for them. They're there. And Moses in the sermon says, I'm not going. I'm not going. And let me tell you why. And he gives a story again of his failure to trust the Lord. And he's not allowed into the land. He wants them to understand how important it is to God that we do things his way. Verse 24, this is a passage that's um, quoted in the book of Hebrews, but it says, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire. He consumes sin. And he will consume the person still in sin. He, he's a consuming fire. This speaks of his judgment, doesn't it? When you think about this. This, this points to his judgment. And then, uh, I, I think that's one thing, right? There's the judgment of God. But then the, the last phrase there, a jealous God, I think, speaks of his love. So in one aspect, this is our God. He's a, he's a consuming fire. Nothing that's not holy and perfect can ever get into his presence. It'll be consumed. That's why sinners will not stand in the glories of God for eternity. They'll they'll stand somewhere and be judged, but they can't be there because they're not cleansed. They're not blameless through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then on this other end, he's, he's a jealous God. And this is a God who does not want to share us with sin. He does not want us to be caught up in the things that are contrary to him. And so you see this jealous God for us. This is why he gives such detailed truth within God's word. I don't want you participating in these things. You are mine. You're my family. You belong to me. Such a good reminder. Why do you not go with the world and do the things the world does? Because you're not in their family anymore. You, You don't belong to them. You belong to a God who loves you and is jealous for you. You belong to his family. Verse 25, when you become a father of children and children's children and have remained long in the land and act corruptly. Now here we go, this prophetic warning now comes. He's had three warnings for them before they cross over. Now he gets into a prophetic warning. I think this is quite fascinating. And have remained long in the land and act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything 
that list above, right? And do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, because the Lord's always watching, Lord your God, as to provoke him to anger. Now here's what he does. Look what he ratifies this, this statement with. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. Now that's quite a statement. He says, I'm calling on heaven and earth these unchangeable things, at least in their life, right, as they look at the earth and the heavens, right? I'm calling upon those things which I created to, to, to witness against you that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you're going over the, the Jordan to possess. You shall not live long on it, but you will be utterly destroyed. It's a prophetic, it's a prophetic warning. And of course, we know that's exactly what they did. He's warning that. Verse 27 Here's the awful results of all that. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in numbers among the nations where the Lord drives you. There you will serve gods in the hands of man's hand, in the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. And this is exactly what Psalms 115 says. There's these idols that cannot see, have eyes but they cannot see and ears they cannot hear and so forth. This is what you're going to be in. You're not going to have me, the God of holiness, the, the God who's jealous for you, the God who protects you and brings you out of the iron furnace. You're not going to have that. You're going to have dead gods that can't do anything for you. Man, that's a great warning, isn't it? It's a warning against getting involved with this world. There's nothing there. It's dead. And he's warning them of this. Verse 29, here we really see, I think, prophetic from Daniel to end times here. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God. It, remember, it's all prophetic. It hasn't happened yet. He's telling them these things are going to happen. And you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. See, that's the difference. Before, they, they went with their flesh. It got, it's going to get them into trouble. They're going to want to have the things of the world. But, but repentance, and I think this is clear here, when you search him, this is repentance, when you search him with your heart and all your soul, when you are distressed and all of these things that have come upon you, in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. And, and a prayer just to read every once in a while is Daniel's prayer of repentance. He prays a prayer for the nation of Israel so personal, it, it, it's, it's just a great prayer to read because you go, wow, that's repentance. And that's what's going to happen. Daniel is going to repent for the nation, and, but then there's these latter days, and I think this is time coming, that there will be a remnant of the nation of Israel that will turn to Christ, and he will gather them in. Verse 31, for the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He's, he's reminding, yes, you're going to go through this. You're going to serve these other gods. You're going to get destroyed, some of you. But your God is a compassionate God. He hears you when you cry out. When you come with your heart and your soul. He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. He reminds them of his graciousness. Aren't you thankful for that, that God is that way? He forgives you. Verse 32 through 40 is God's role in history in a way. And notice he starts with some rhetorical questions. Indeed, ask now concerning the former days which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth. You think Genesis is the only one that talks about the creation of man? It is such part of the instruction um, to the nation of Israel that you are not some kind of involved something that walked out of soup. God created you. 
So he reminds them of their former days, which were before you, since the day that the Lord God created you, created man on the earth, and inquire from one end of the heavens to the others. Has anything been done like this great thing? Or has anything been ever heard of it? I, I, he's, sometimes we get so complacent as Christians, right? We get pulled away by all the things we're going through, right? Has anybody ever had this done to him? Now, of course, in Christianity, we, we have that in common, right? Yes, I was a slave to sin and God rescued my soul. But think about this in a national sense. Has God done this to anyone else? He took this nation, an undeserving people, a whining, complaining nation of people, and look what he did for them. And Moses is preaching now, man. He, he's sown, since the day God created man on the earth, you can, you can go all the way back to that. You can search from end to end of the heavens. Has God ever done anything great like this before? You forget what God has done, you'll do sinful things. And it's just in that moment, right? That moment of weakness, that moment of time where we forget about what our God has done and we end up somewhere where we don't want to be. Verse 33, more rhetorical question. Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard and survived? No. The Hittites didn't hear it. The Canaanites didn't hear it. The nation of Israel did. He, he's reminding of this special relationship that he has with them. Verse 30. For God's great favor here upon the nation, or has a God tried to go to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by a, uh, and by war, and by the mighty hand and the outstretched arm, and by great terrors, as the Lord your God did in Egypt before your eyes? I mean, there is a whole lot of in there, but think about all the things that happened. Water turned to blood, frogs crawling everywhere, you know, lightning and hail, and, and then the death of the firstborn. Look what God has done. Don't forget what he has done. Verse 35, to you, Israel, is the idea here. It was shown. Not to the rest of the nations. It's to you. See, there's, there's a sense of responsibility to those who know the truth. And so he says it was shown that you might know the Lord. You might be invested in him, right? You, you might want to know him more and more. That's what keeps us out of idol worship and running to the world. It is the theology of God, knowing God through Jesus Christ. Notice he said, know that the Lord, he is God and there is no other beside him. He's driving that point home, right? Because that's the problem, right? Oh, the neighbors, you know, they worship this and they got rain and, and they have a, a fertility God and so forth and they're gonna get caught up in that. Verse 36, out of the heavens, he let you hear his voice to discipline you. Ooh. Now, it's clear, right? Um, Hebrews 12.6 says he disciplines the one he loves, right? So, so here is another statement of love. It has to be. If we connect those verses, out of the heavens, he let you hear his voice. That means he had to open their ears so they would hear, right? There's times where, where Jesus spoke on the, mount, on the road to Damascus with Paul, and they saw the bright light, but they never heard the voice of God. Paul did, though. 
See, he chooses some to hear his voice, and even in the discipline aspect here, we look at the word of God. I don't know if you read the word of God and you felt the discipline the hand of God on. We all should have that. You feel disciplined because you go, oh my God loves me. I can hear him. He's he is challenging me and wooing me to not be involved in that or to get out of that or, or not do those things to trust him in these areas. And notice on the earth, he let you see his great fire. He let you see his glory. I was just reading the other day, Exodus chapter 40 again. It's the final completion of the tabernacle and everybody pulls away and the Shekinah glory fills it. I mean, that had to be just an incredible event. I really want to see the replay on that someday. I mean, the Shekinah glory of God. And they would have connected this right away with God because they saw that fire on, on the Mount Sinai. And now it's filling the temple. And he says, look, I let you see my glory in a sense. And you heard his words in the midst of the fire. So this is at Mount Sinai, and as you think about this, brothers and sisters, if you're here today and you're saved, you saw his glory and you heard his word, didn't you? You saw who he was. You saw, I'm a sinner, and there's no way I can get saved outside of the great merciful God to judge my, judge my Savior in my case, and for me and, and be a substitute for me. I, I've, that's, that's seeing the glory of God. And you get it from his word, and so, yes, these were theophanies and they were amazing and God's speaking and they're hearing the voice because they don't have the word of God. Nothing's in print yet. But you and I see the glory of God daily when we choose to say, God, I'm going to spend time with you in your word. I'm going to set time. And I look, maybe if not doing it, five minutes. Start with five minutes of just reading. I promise you it'll grow to 10 and 15. And when you fall in love deeply with the word of God, you just can't get out of it. You go, oh man, I gotta go. I can't do another chapter. And, and that's what we are, right? We've seen his voice, we've heard his voice and we've seen his truth in the word of God and it captures us. Verse 37, all this because he loved your fathers, he tells them. Therefore he chose their descendants after them. Galatians 3.8 says that he preached the gospel to Abraham. Isn't that an amazing statement? Preach the gospel to Abraham. He loved the forefathers. He loved Abraham. Abraham's father worshipped the gods on the other side of the river, Joshua tells us. These were pagans, and he pulls people out of that. And he loved them. And he was committed to them, and he's committed to the seed of Christ coming down through them. And so, so he says he loved their fathers and therefore he chose their descendants after them. He chose them to be this nation. Not the Hittites, not the Canaanites, but them. And look at this. And he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power. What a demonstration of the gospel. Enslaved to sin, enslaved to Egypt, he has the power to bring them out. And Moses is preaching it here, isn't he? Verse 38 Drive out from before you the nations greater and mightier than you. This is their challenge. This is what he's telling them to do. To bring you in and to give you the land of, their, of the inheritance as it is to this day. This great God not only brought you out of Egypt, but he's going to drive the nations before you. He'll be like wasps that go in there. Keep faith in him and you will have an inheritance. Verse 39. Now therefore today take it to heart. That the Lord, he is God in heaven, above the earth below. There is no other. 
I wrote my Bible here in my sidebar here. God establishing the soulless God. There is no other soulless God. You're going to be tempted by those gods that are not gods. There is no other. And so verse 40, he says, So you shall keep his statutes and commandments which I have given you this day, that it may go well with you and with your children after you. Heritage here. Following God, believing God, believing God enough to follow and obey him, and that you may live long on the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. (laughs) There's still a battle over that land, isn't there? Verse 41 through 43, um, just quickly here as I end, um, this is the refuge cities that are given to the eastern side where the two and a half tribes are there. Um, he, he marks out the cities, these refuge cities where if somebody was a manslaughter, meaning they accidentally killed someone, they could go there and so they're, they're not killed and they can get a fair trial there. And then 40, 44 through 49 is a reminder of the historical um, uh, just, uh, bringing out, taking away um, the kings of, of Moab and so forth out of there. And so Moses rehearses that you're in a land that didn't belong to you already. And I think what he does here, and I'll just close with this, he's showing this, look, look what I already did so you'll believe me when we cross this river. I took the Amorites and took them out. And now you have all their cities, you have their livestock, you have their land, and we're not even in the promised land. So I think that's fascinating that he does that, and he closes out the chapter. Um, like I thought, I, I wasn't sure I have enough time to get it through. So next time, I want to start with, okay, now all this law is being given, these Ten Commandments we're going to look at. How, does, how do we as Christians interact with the law now? And we'll look at those three thoughts that are on there next time. Father, thank you for this time together. We thank you for uh, that we got the opportunity to witness a baptism. We, which, we watched a young lady who long to declare what you have done for her, how you rescued her. And she gave a clear testimony, and she gave it with joy. And Lord, we look at this passage, and here God is teaching his nation, you remember that I brought you out of slavery. I freed you when you could not free yourself. I've brought you to a promised land. You're on the doorstep of it. I've even taken care of it on this side of the river. And Lord, we experience that. We're not in heaven. We're on the other side of the river, it seems, right now. And you even meet our needs now, Lord. So help us not forget that you are a good God. You're a God, a consuming fire God. You, you deal with sin. You, you, you're a holy God. You, you, you consume that. And yet, you're a jealous God. You do not want to share us with anything. And so, Lord, help us be more mindful where we might be sharing our lives with something that God would consume. Help us think deeply about those things, Lord, and out of love obey and follow you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.